Amen. Let's get to see everyone this morning. How are you? Doing good? Okay. That's good to hear. Are you sure? Yeah? Kind of a mixed signal this morning. I'm not so sure. But that's okay. We're going to move on anyway. Maybe you'll know by the end. But if you would take your Bibles and open up to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we're going to look at this chapter uh, in its whole this morning. We won't be able to look at every uh, single verse just for, for time's sake. I think I have every verse uh, in our slides. But uh, uh, we're, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture and look at uh, this promise that God gives to King David that we get to enjoy today in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as you turn into 2 Samuel chapter 7, I, I, I want to start off with a question this morning, and I want you to think deep about it. Um, what's the best gift that you've ever gotten? Like that one Christmas that you remember more than anything else. What's that best gift you can ever remember? Now, for me, it would be my wife and kids. I don't, I don't know what all of you and spiritual people were thinking. I'm sure you were thinking about toys and things like that. But, but no, I mean, what, what's the, the best thing that you've ever gotten? The thing that you, you're like, man, this is what, uh, th- this was the, the pinnacle of gifts. Now, now think about the flip side of that. What's the, the best gift you've ever given? What's the, what's the best gift you've ever said, I, I nailed it right here. Like, I have given the perfect gift. They got stuff before me and they got stuff after me, but they've never gotten a gift like I gave. Like, well, what sets that gift apart? And, and as you think about that and you think about the gift that you gave, what if you would have done everything you can to give this person the perfect gift and, and slide it over to them and they open it up and then they say, I don't think I want that. That would not be a fun day, would it? What if that's what God did to you? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And you'll see what I mean here in a minute. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the, the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, the king here being David, verse 2 here, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we gather in this place this morning, God, that you would speak to us from your word. God, I pray that in spite of all the stuff we brought in with us, in spite of all the inadequacies of me, the preacher, Lord, that you would bless us. Uh, with your presence, that you would bless us with the illumination of your word, that we would hear from you, that we would respond to you, and that we would be changed by you. God, we need your help. We need your strength. We need your grace. God, we need you. Help us, Lord. Uh, Help us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this starts off, verses 1 through 3, is a pretty good, if it ends here, we think of David, the king, as being a good guy. David wants to give the best gift he can give to God. I mean, what do you get the person who has literally everything, right? I mean, no one has more than God. But David, it says here that now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest, David is sitting around and he's counting his blessings, so to speak. He's looking around and he's like, man, my house is pretty nice. Like, I got a palace these days. I live in a house of cedar. 
I, I'm, I'm rich, basically, is what David is saying. I am blessed. God has blessed me, and I don't have to go out and fight anymore. These are good days indeed. It's a wonderful time in my life. This is what David is thinking to himself. He's aware of all that God has done for him, which is not a bad place to be, right? And so as he thinks about all that God has done for him in the house that he lives in, he looks over and, and he thinks about the fact that the ark of God lives in a tent, that the ark of, a God, of God is in a tent. And you're like, what's the ark of God? Oh yeah, I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Indiana Jones. I know all about the, the ark of God. Well, the, the ark of God was actually the, the symbol of the presence of God. It was a box that God had given the people of Israel to remind them that he is with them, to remind them that uh, he has brought them out of slavery, into freedom, into the promised land, all these different things. The ark represents the fact that God lives in and among his people. It's basically what the, the symbol of God's presence. And so David looks and he sees the symbol of God's presence, the ark of God, and he says, I'm up here in this nice palace. It's really good. I'm enjoying it. But God, his ark is in a tent. Like a tent. I, I mean, it's a nice tent, but it's a tent. Right? I mean, if you've got to choose between a nice house and a nice tent, which one are you going to choose? And so he's like... This isn't good. I'm kind of embarrassed at this moment. Like, I have it really nice, and God's in a tent. And so he goes to Nathan, his pastor, this prophet of God, and he says, Nathan, listen, man, I'm doing really well. God has blessed me immensely. I think I need to build God a house. Nathan's response is, go do whatever's in your heart. It sounds good to me. Like, you've got to understand something. Nathan, a man who serves the Lord and who worships the Lord and is part of the, the constant sacrifices and worship uh, in, the, in, the, in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, has to be thinking, this must be of God. Like, if you meet me at the door this, this morning on the way out and you say, hey, preacher, i got a bunch of money and I want to build a big, brand-new church, I'm not going to be like, oh, let me pray about that. I'm like, okay, let's do it, right? I mean, it makes sense to me. But that's, that's what Nathan does. He says, sure, do it. I mean, what could go wrong? I mean, God has promised that one day we're going to have a temple, one day we're going to have a place to worship and all this. And so, of course, I mean, what better time than the present? So Nathan goes home, <coughs> and he goes to bed, and he's sleeping. I'm sure he's dreaming about this temple and what it's going to look like and all these different things. And God shows up, and he answers a prayer that Nathan didn't pray. He answers a question that Nathan didn't ask. Don't you love it when God does that? When you're like, I got it all figured out. I know what I'm going to do. And he shows up and he's like, I know you weren't asking me which way to go, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you anyway. That's how God is, right? I mean, we are blessed with the Holy Spirit in the way that he directs us. So we come to verse 4 here. And so Nathan goes home. He goes to bed. And verse 4 says, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where, where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying... Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Hear what God is saying to David. Your really great gift that you want to give me? Yeah, I don't want it. In fact, uh, no, I will not accept it. Not because it's too much, 
but because I don't want it. He says no to David's gift. That would have sort of hurt my feelings a little bit. It hurt your feelings a little bit, maybe? Like David's like, man, I want to bless God. I want to give God something amazing. And God's like, nah. <laughs> and he goes on and he explains why. You see, what he is saying here when we look at these verses is that he doesn't need an earthly dwelling. He says, are you going to build me a house? David, do you know who I am? Like, uh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I don't need a roof over my head, David. He, he says, in fact, I have never asked for a roof over my head. I've never asked for a house of cedar. Everywhere the people of Israel have went since they left Egypt... I've lived in a tent and never asked for anything else. Now, I, I don't want to get you lost in, in, in flashbacks, basically, but you, you need to understand what he's talking about here. God had called his people. Israel was a, a group of people who were enslaved to the Egyptians. The Egyptians were pretty mean to them, and they began to cry out. God had promised that he was going to set them free one day. So they cry out, God, set us free, please. You know, we need your help. God sends a guy named Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And they go out and they walk around in the wilderness for 40 years. In the process, they build the tabernacle, this tent that the, the ark of God had been in for all those years. And then after they walk around in the wilderness for a long time, they finally go into the promised land. And they're in the promised land. And they get some judges. And then they get a king, Saul, who doesn't make it. And then they get King David. We're David, not David. David. Uh, it's not DVD time, right? I mean, David. Uh, and what he does is he becomes this great king of Israel. Like before David, they're this loosely affiliated group of tribes. They don't have a, much power. They don't have much government, any of that. Under David, uh, God uses David to sort of pull them all together and unite them. And they become this united front. They get strength. They get money. They get basically everything they ever needed. And throughout this whole process, God is dwelling in a tent, the place of worship is a tent. It's not a permanent dwelling. It's not a place uh, where you would think, man, the God who owns that, he's rich. You would think, man, he lives in a tent, really? But that's sort of God's point. I dwell among my people. I'm where my people are. God, God is saying, my, my worth is not based on what you build for me, David. Are you going to build me a house? I don't dwell in houses like people do. Don't you know I own everything already? That he's, God is saying to David, David, anything you give me is already mine to begin with. It's kind of hard to give me something that I don't already own. Like, you know, growing up and your parents would take you to the store and they would give you some money to buy them a gift? That's wonderful, right? And then you even have to go home, and then, they, then you go home and they, they actually wrap it, <laughs> you know, for you. Like, I mean, you have all this, you're like, wow, I'm really... You know, I've really shown them something here. Like, you can imagine. But, but God, God, in his grace to David, is saying, listen, David, I don't need anything you have. I've never asked for anything you have. There's nothing you can give me. And, and so David uh, hears from God, no, I don't want your gift. And like I said, I mean, this would, this would hurt our feelings a little bit, wouldn't it? We've went through all of this effort to, to do something, to honor God, to give something to God. And God's like, wait, you don't understand. It's all mine already. You got me the wrong thing. I remember, um, I guess it was the first Christmas that Crystal and I were, were dating. We, I don't know if we were engaged at this point or not. We had this big, long engagement of a whole year that we knew each other before we got married. But anyway, this first Christmas, Crystal, my wife, is very thoughtful. 
and very kind, and she loves to get me gifts that I didn't ask for because that's like her love language. You know, she likes to surprise me. That's something that she enjoys to do. And so she puts a lot of thought, a lot of effort into anything she ever gets me. And I remember she got me a knife and a knife sharpener. And I was like, oh, thank you, sweetheart. This is wonderful. And what I did not confess to her at the time was that I'm not very good at sharpening knives. I never have been. Like, my hands are super shaky, and so it doesn't work out well for anybody. Like, dull knives actually work out better for me because I end up stabbing myself, but beside the point. And so later on, I confessed that. I was like, yeah, you know, you remember when you bought me that knife sharpener, and I never actually even opened it, yeah. And she's like, well, you know, when I married you, I thought I was marrying a man, you know. I mean, anyway, but, but <laughs> you know, when we get stuff for people and we put a lot of time and effort into it, it hurts our feelings when they're like, hey, I don't really need that anyway. And it was far enough, I was smart enough even at that age to know not to say anything until many, many years later. But with God, it's a little different. With God, the thought actually doesn't count. What counts is what he tells us. And, and this is the problem, guys. We think we're in the position to bless God. David thinks he's a grown-up now that he can buy something for his parents. And they, God is like, no, you're still my child. The blessings still flow down, not up. And so you need to hear this, David. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Hear what God is saying to David. You need to remember where you came from. You need to remember who you were when I found you. You were a shepherd, David. In fact, God had told Samuel, go to Jesse's house. And one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king. God, uh, Samuel shows up at Jesse's house and says, Hey, listen, one of your sons is going to be the next king. And he goes through all the, the different sons that Jesse has, except for David, who's the youngest, who's the shepherd, who Jesse, David's own father, doesn't even look at and say, You know what? Maybe David's the next king. Like they're standing there going, We don't understand. The king's not here. They, and he's like, Oh, yeah, I guess I do have another son. But surely it's not him. Like, that's David. He's the guy who's least likely to succeed in everyone else's mind. And God says, don't you remember who you were when I found you, son? Don't you remember that you were a shepherd in a field? And I took you out of that field and I made you prince over my people? It's interesting. God uses the, the Hebrew word for prince, not for king here. I think it's to remind David, David, they may call you king, but I'm still the real king. David, they may call you king, but I'm still the real boss. You have not grown up. Remember which way this offering flows. Remember which way this blessing flows. It doesn't flow up, it flows down. God blesses you. You don't bless him in that, in that way. You don't give him gifts, he gives you gifts. And so he says, listen, David, everything you have, you have because I gave it to you. This house you're so embarrassed about having... Yeah, I'm the one who provided that for you. you. You think that you've arrived, but what you need to understand is I've given you these things. I'm not hurting for anything. God has not broken the bank to provide for David. God will not ever be paid back by David. It doesn't matter how hard he works at it. It doesn't matter how much he gives. He'll never be able to give God back what he has received. It's never going to happen. He's never going to be even with God. He's never even going to have anything to offer God because it's all his. 
Like I said, it's just as silly as us thinking that we can give our parents something with their own money. I mean, that's basically what David is trying to do here. Now, he gives out of a sense of gratitude, and he should give out of a sense of gratitude, but God wants to make it clear. I didn't ask for this, and you will worship me according to my word, and on my timetable, and what I say, not what you say. I'm not uh, at your mercy, David. You are at mine. And so then we come to verse 10. So God says, David, I don't want your gift, but I'm going to give you a gift. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, declares the, uh, moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Hear what God is saying to David. You're not going to build me a house, David. I'm building you a house. I'm going to build you a house. Verse 12, this is how he builds the house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, one day you're going to die. And when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, a descendant of yours, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Guys, here we have what may be called the promise of promises. This is, if not one of, if maybe the most important promises in the Old Testament. And the reason why is because it is tied into everything that God calls us to hope for and hope in. Uh, verse 13 here, when it says that, uh, uh, when it talks about, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. This is the the heart of the hope of the gospel, that there will be a king to reign forever, to bless God's people. And so, uh, now we've got to understand there's two things going on here. Number one, God is talking about Solomon, David's son, who will build the temple. He'll build an earthly temple. He'll build a physical temple for God's people to worship God in. But, God is also looking past Solomon into the future to the true son that is coming, to the true descendant of David to the true son of David. You see, this Savior is actually going to build a house that will last forever. The temple that Solomon built is, is long gone. The house that God is going to use his son to build is going to last forever. He shall build a house for my name, and, he, and it will last forever. Under him, this true king, there will be no end to his reign. Think, think about Matthew 1, one, the very first passage we have in the New Testament, the very first part of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says that the beginning or the genealogy of Jesus, the Savior or the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. This is tied into everything that we hope. All the hope we have around Christmas is tied into the idea that the Son of David will come and finally be true king. The Son of David will come and finally be our Savior and finally set things right and his rule will not have an end. But he says that he's going to take David and through this sh former shepherd, make a true king who will glorify God in all the earth and who will reign forever. And so he says, David, even after you're long gone, I'm going to use you. you. You may not get to do what you want to do. You may not get to do what was in your mind and your plan. But I'm still going to make you a part of my plan to save the entire world. And, and so God says, David, I'm going to use you to build me a house. I'm going to use your son to build me a house. <clears throat> Verse 14 says, I will be to him a father, 
and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now here we, we know that this is talking about Solomon and his descendants. Uh, Jesus, of course, never sinned. And so we're talking about the kings between David uh, and Jesus. And so he says, uh, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. What's God's point here? Look at verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. What God is telling David here is that David's sons, his earthly sons, are going to mess up. They are going to sin. Solomon does a really good job at sinning and messing things up, and so do pretty much everyone who follows Solomon. But that does not put a stop to God's promise to provide a Savior, to provide a true king. God is saying to David, David, you may die, and all these other people may die, and all these people, all these men may mess up, but my promise will last forever. He says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. God's plan will go unchanged in spite of the inadequacies of men, in spite of the sinfulness of mankind. God's promise will come true, not because of who they are, but because of who He is. And so God is saying the most important part of this promise is the fact that I'm the one making it, the fact that I'm the one who's declaring this is what's going to happen. It's not based on who Solomon is. It's not based on any of these other kings. It's based on the fact that God has said, I'm going to give a king. And so he says, my steadfast love. This, this word steadf- behind steadfast love is faithfulness. It's uh, in the Hebrew, the hesed. It's, it's used I, throughout the entire Old Testament. It's the idea that God loves us because he loves us. It's the idea of his commitment to his covenant, not based on who we are, but based on who he is. And then verse 16, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God, uh, David says, uh, God says to David, you will spend eternity with me. There'll be no end to the reign of this king that is coming. He says, I'm going to use him to make me a house. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he's born in that little town of Bethlehem, that's exactly what happens. After thousands of years of these people suffering under the rule of failed king after failed king after failed king, finally the true son of David appears. Finally, the true Savior of the world appears and fulfills God's promise to save the world through the Son of David. And he is born King of the Jews, as the the Magi calls him. And Jesus lives perfectly. And then at the end of his perfect life, Jesus is offered up as a sacrifice in our place for our sins, for all the things that we have done so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. And it's through this that Jesus builds the house of God, the people of God, the church of God, the temple of God. We learn in Ephesians 2 that as we come to know Christ, we're brought into the temple of God, made not with bricks and stone and mortar, but made by people that God dwells in, that we become the temple of God as we gather. This building is great and we love it and we're thankful to the Lord for it, but this is not where God lives. God lives here through Christ. He's made us His temple. He's made us His house. And so as we gather as the church, we are the temple of God. As we leave from here, we are the temple of God. God dwells in us. He no longer dwells in a tent. He no longer dwells in a temple. He dwells in us. The one who doesn't need a house made with hands dwells in our heart through Christ. And so when God says to David, your son will build me a house, what he's talking about, is the fact that, God, that Jesus is going 
to build the church. He's going to save a people and make us his own. And so God says to David, David, I know you have a really good idea and I know you have a really good gift you want to give me. But I'm going to give you something a thousand times better. I'm going to say no to your plan, but I'm going to give you something way internally better than that. And so, so we learn here that God's no is a million times better than anybody else's yes. God has greater things in store for David than David could have ever dreamed or imagined or even asked for. You see, when, when we rest in God's wisdom, when we rest in his grace and his truth, he takes what we think we want and what we pray for, and he turns it into something way better. David wanted to build a temple. God says, no, I'm going to use you to build a people, and in fact, I'm going to use you to save the world. It's through your line that Jesus will come. It's through your line that the Savior will come, that the true king will come. David's thinking about an earthly temple that's going to go away one day anyway. God says, no, I'm going to give you something forever. Uh, God does not always answer our prayers the way we want him to, even when they make sense, right? I, I mean, you, you think about the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man who loved the Lord, who served the Lord, who served the churches, and, and he did all kinds of amazing things for the Lord. God worked through him. Well, at one point, Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. It was something that hurt him deeply. I don't know if it was a physical problem, a personal problem, a, a, a spiritual problem. Uh, we don't know. We just know it's a messenger of Satan to... to uh, remind Paul basically that um, to stay humble because of everything that God had shown him. But Paul says, you know, I prayed three times that God would deliver me from this thorn in the flesh. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. If someone like Paul could pray and ask for God to take away the pain, and God says, no, I'm not going to take away the pain. I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you the grace to make it through. We should learn from that. Like when we pray, God, give me that job. And he says, no. Maybe he's trying to point you in a, a better direction. When, he, when we say, God, you know, remove this person in my life that is just absolutely driving me crazy, and God says no, maybe what he's saying is, is maybe you need to learn some patience. When, when God does not provide the money that we think we need, maybe he's saying you need to trust in me more. See, God, God is not saying no to loving you or to accepting you. He is telling you to say yes to something better. Think, th think about Jesus, the very Son of God, the Savior, the one that God sent to into the world in the, in the garden before Jesus goes to the cross. You remember Jesus is praying and he says, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from my lips. This cup being the wrath of God that's about to be poured on him for our sins. He says, if it's possible, remove this cup from my lips. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays, remove it from me, and all we hear is silence. God is saying no, there is no other way, so that he can say yes to receiving us into fellowship, so he can say yes to saving us. You see, sometimes God says no, so that he can say yes. He said no to David, but he says yes to providing David a son that will bring us into his kingdom. Guys, when we come to Christmas, we come just amazed at the promise that God is fulfilling in Christ and the fact that he sent his own son to die in our place, to be our true king. And as we come to this time, I just want to encourage you from verse 18 to respond as David responded. As he hears God say no, but yes, David responds in verse 18 with, Then the king went in and sat before the Lord. And said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? 
Hear what David is saying in his humility. He's saying, God, I don't deserve anything you could ever give me. I don't deserve any of this that you have given me. How is it that I've made it this far? Why is it that I've made it this far? Who am I? He understands he's not worthy of God's blessing, but that he's received it anyway. Can I tell you that until we get to that place, it's going to be really hard to worship him. As long as we feel like we're the ones who can bless the Lord instead of him blessing us, we're going to have a hard time worshiping. We're not going to understand what the big deal is about Christmas, about the fact that he sent his only son in our place. We're going to be saying, yeah, of course he did. In fact, here, let me give you something back to that, God. Let me pay you back. But no, we, David says, who am I? He understands that he's not worthy. But then, then we come to verse 25. In verse 25, it says, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Hear what David is saying. I'm done trying to tell you what to do. What your plan is is way better than my plan. What you want to do is way better than what I want to do. And so I'm going to give up trying to tell you what to do, Lord, and just trust you. What you said to do, yeah, do that. David is praying God's promise and his word back to him. Because that's something we, we all can learn from. We, we must come to the place where when we come to these hard times, we, we say, Lord, I, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but here's what your word says. Would you do this? Here's what you promised to happen. Would you do this? We, we need to be reminded of that this morning. We need to be reminded that it's not us to fix everything. It's up to Him. We need to step out of the way and let God be God. We need to step out of the way instead of saying, God, I'm going to do you a favor and I'm going to fix this according to the way I think it ought to be fixed. Like I'm probably going to tell that person what I think or you know, I'm going to go about this the way I want to go about it and make it happen. And we pray God's promise back to Him. Lord, you, you promise that Your grace is sufficient no matter what. No, you, you promise, Lord, that no matter what happens, you will not leave me. You will not forsake me. God, you promise that when I don't have wisdom, you'll give it. You say that whoever lacks wisdom, just ask you and you'll provide it freely. God, I need wisdom. And so we pray his promises back to him. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that we're not smarter than God this morning. That our plan is not better than his plan. That he doesn't need to get his act together and get on board with us. But rather, we need to look for how we can get on board with him. Christmas is a perfect example of that. God had the foresight to plan all of this out so that in the fullness of time, His Son would come into the world. Sometimes, maybe you need to be reminded what it means to be a child of God. Maybe you've forgotten the promise that God gave to David. He said, David, even though all these people are going to fail, even though all these people down through the ages are going to mess up, my promise is going to hold true. God tells David, I'm going to send the Savior and I'm going to send the King in spite of these sinful men who are going to try and derail my plan at every turn in the road. Guys, you cannot mess up God's plan this morning. You cannot make Him not love you. You cannot do something so terrible that His grace isn't sufficient for you. You are not stronger. If, if a thousand years of men making terrible choices can't derail God's love, what makes you think you're more powerful than them? What makes you think you're worse than they, they were? You need to get a hold of God's love this morning. Christmas reminds us that no matter what happens, God is going to fulfill His promise to save all those who trust on Christ. Don't walk around this morning. Maybe, maybe you're here and you've trusted on Jesus and you're, you're a believer, but you've gotten off track. You've went the wrong direction. You've taken the wrong turn and, and you've begun to walk in, in sinfulness. Maybe that's you this morning. You're like, I... I would come back, but I don't think God loves me anymore. 
So you're more powerful than a, than a thousand years of terrible kings to derail God's plan. No. God in Christ has promised to save you, not because of who you are, but because of who He is. And so maybe this morning you need to be reminded that you are His child. That He didn't go through all that to save you, just to have you walk away. No, he, he wants you to walk in Him. And so maybe you need to pray and say, Lord, you promise in your word that if I say I have no sin, I'm a liar and the truth isn't in me, but that if I confess my sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Maybe that's the prayer you need to pray this morning. Lord, you have saved me in Christ. Would you cleanse me now and bring me back to you? Or maybe this morning, you've never trusted on Jesus to begin with. Maybe this morning you've never taken hold of the promise he's given you to save you and bring you to dwell with him forever. Guys, he promises you that if you'll simply trust on Christ, believe on him, you'll be saved, that you'll be forgiven, and that you will not die, but you will spend eternity with Christ, which, of course, is the greatest promise of all and the greatest gift of all. So I wonder, what is God calling you to do with this this morning? Is he calling you to reevaluate your life and say, Lord, where am I trying to get in your way? Where am I trying to tell you what to do? Is, that, is, he, is he calling you to look and say, Lord, I need to give this over to you. I need to allow your plan to work out instead of my own. Do you need to rest in this grace this morning? Maybe you feel uh, just discouraged by the way you've been living. Ask him for his forgiveness. Ask him for his grace. Ask him for a clean slate. He provides it. Maybe this morning you need Jesus. You need him to save you. Ask him to save you even now. If you would stand with us, and as you stand, I'm going to pray. Uh, and after I pray, we're going to have a time uh, of singing.